Hi everyone and welcome to the podcast. I'm Rosalind and I'm here with Julika and Daphne and today we're going to be chatting about Julika's upcoming talk on suicide in low and middle income countries and she's going to be presenting this talk at the UCL Institute of Mental Health annual virtual conference. This will be on September the 15th. We will be talking about suicide and self-harm, so if discussions surrounding these topics cause any kind of distress, you may wish to turn this podcast off and do something else. We also have information in the show notes about teams of mental health care professionals who work with people in severe distress. This podcast is aimed at researchers and policymakers, but it may also be of interest to the wider audience. So, Jalika, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. You've had a really interesting journey in becoming a mental health epidemiologist. Do you want to tell us a little bit about your background? I think you may have started in microbiology and pathology, but now you've taken a little bit of a different route. Yeah, so um, thank you for having me on this um, this podcast. So in terms of my journey, yes, as you have correctly um, <laughs> described, I started off with the micro. I started off looking at uh, um, microbes and viruses um, uh, as part of my undergraduate degree. I absolutely hated it. I could not stand the sight of a microscope or a pe- um, Petri dish. Um, so I actually gave all of that up and became an events organiser for several years. Um, And so I left academia totally and um, by chance fell into uh, working on a public uh, population health project um, in Cardiff. And it sort of, through context, just found myself in Sri Lanka uh, working on a large randomized control trial, initially going out there for three months to just see what it's like to work in a global setting. Um, I, my, I was born in Sri Lanka, but I grew up uh, in Hong Kong. So it's, you know, lots of different places. But yeah, so I ended back, back up in Sri Lanka. And um, after three months of working on this trial, which was looking at uh, introducing uh, locked boxes uh, to communities to try and reduce access to lethal means as a way of reducing suicide deaths and self-poisoning acts in in the country. Um, and yeah, three months in, I ended up staying there for nearly two years and then um, did my PhD based on that project. And I essentially have now been working on suicide and self-harm research in Sri Lanka and other sort of low middle income countries um, for about a decade. Um, so my understanding is that your work has focused primarily in low and middle income countries. Can you tell us a little bit about um, suicide in these countries, how, how common it is? As I said, my research career has primarily been in low and middle income countries. Um, so when we talk about suicide deaths, uh, a lot of people are actually surprised to find out that 80% of all suicide deaths occur in low and middle income countries. So uh, whilst there is quite a, a strong focus, and rightly so, on suicide in high-income countries, the, the burden of this uh, problem or this issue is felt most greatly in low middle income countries. Now, my research is focused on suicide in Sri Lanka. And in Sri Lanka, as in many low middle income countries, suicide has, um, is a problem in um, 
young people. So uh, for, for Sri Lanka, um, suicide rates are highest in young women um, and, and older men. So it's kind of a, a, a different picture to what we would see in high-income countries. Um, countries like India have very high rates of suicide in young people um, and young women particularly. So uh, that's a different picture to what we would see in high-income countries where we typically see higher rates of suicide in sort of middle-age and older-age groups. Self-harm obviously is a different um, different behaviour to sort of suicide deaths. Um, I have an additional point to make about suicide in low-middle-income countries and that is regarding methods. So one of the reasons why we might be seeing quite different rates of suicide in low middle income countries compared to high income countries is that the methods used in these different settings are quite different for acts of self-harm with low suicidal intent. So people who engage in acts of self-harm with low suicidal intent in say high income countries uh, typically will take sort of poisoning overdoses. Now those Poisoning overdoses are things that are often readily available in the home. Now, in high-income countries, typically those methods are uh, reasonably kind of low toxicity. But in low-middle-income countries, the toxicity of the methods available in the home are quite they, they have a high case fatality often associated with them, um, particularly in agricultural communities where pesticide suicide deaths are a very common um, method of suicide. So in these communities, it's clear that a large proportion of suicides are due to this intentional pesticide self-poisoning. Is there any research looking at how kind of culture and religion and social factors may be influential in these kind of behaviours? So in terms of culture and religion, um, I think these are relatively understudied areas in terms of suicide research. Um, there is, There are groups of individuals who have um, worked on suicide and in terms of kind of the cultural meaning and things like that. But I would say this is really under-researched. Um, we don't really understand suicide in lower middle income countries. And one of the main reasons for that is it's been a area that has received not very much funding. The capacity for doing research regarding suicide is, is quite limited in uh, lower middle income countries. Um, so we, we have this massive gap in our understanding. But there is there are some things that um, have come out of some of the investigations. So um, again, I will uh, use Sri Lanka as the case study because that's kind of where I've been working. Um, so in Sri Lanka, uh, suicide or suicide-like gestures, which is sometimes how it's referred to in Sri Lanka, um, particularly in young women, is a way of communicating in a, a culture where um, the expression of emotions, or particularly strong emotions, and the challenging of um, hierarchy so generational hierarchies or gender hierarchies um, is is frowned upon. But a socially acceptable way of communicating distress is through acts of self-harm. And unfortunately, some of these acts, as I say, because of the methods used, do end up leading to suicide. So it, it's kind of a, a social practice um, and there is certainly a lot of anthropological evidence from Sri Lanka that suggests that that is certainly the case. So there are different types of suicide behavioural acts in uh, Sri Lanka. And um, 
that kind of I'd say is fairly under-researched and, and, and needs more focus. But that's just Sri Lanka. You know, Sri Lanka is one country, small, tiny island. Um, and there's so many bigger, larger um, countries in, that are low and middle income that have very little research conducted. For example, Africa is, is an area we know very little about in terms of suicide and self-harm. Can I take you back to um, the lethal means? And you talked about pesticide. And I was wondering whether you can tell us a little bit about restriction of means in Sri Lanka. Method restrictions or means restrictions, um, which actually for mental health, I have done an entirely different podcast on. Um, (laughs) In terms of means restrictions, um, uh, for Sri Lanka, there's Sri Lanka is a, a brilliant case study of where means restrictions has re- resulted in a reduction in suicide deaths. So um, there are two ways in which you could reduce access to lethal means. One is by reducing um, access at the sort of very individual level. So stopping somebody being able to physically get hold of something, perhaps by locking it in a cabinet or maybe having um having it sort of further away from the house. So in a moment of suicidal crisis, you are not accessing something that's particularly lethal for your act. And that might sort of um, result in that individual surviving. And then, you know, you can give them help and support. The other option is um, where you implement policies at a national level and um, remove that um, lethal means from... um, the community so you know I guess gun policy is one of those things you know reducing access to guns reducing access to um, putting barriers up on bridges um, that sort of thing now in in Sri Lanka um, what there was an introduction of a series of pesticide bans on the most toxic pesticides in the country now those toxic pesticides are already banned because of concerns over human uh, concerns over human health in high income countries but they are quite readily available in many low and middle income countries so um in sri lanka um there was a sort of group of individuals who came together and lobbied the government to um, ban uh, some of the most toxic pesticides and um, have been doing that now for several years and they've removed a huge number of these toxic pesticides and in a study that um, I was involved with where we looked at the impact of those pesticide regulations on um, suicide deaths we were able to estimate that by introducing these pesticide restrictions at a national level, Sri Lanka was able to prevent roughly about 98,000 98, suicide deaths. Um, so over a 30-year period. So it's it's quite a dramatic reduction in suicide um, that is possible by a single policy at a national level. As I said, the alternative is to do it at an individual level. And that's the other bits of work that I've been involved with, which was the trial that I mentioned earlier on, where I ended up in Sri Lanka. That trial was looking at introducing these boxes. Essentially, it looks like a big water tank um, that we gave to communities which had a padlock on it. Um, They had to dig it into the ground and um, households where there was a 
they either engaged in sort of um, subsistence farming or larger scale farming, they were able to store their pesticides within these devices. And they get a, a padlock, someone has the key. And we did this uh, on a large scale. Um, we included 200,000 people, roughly about 50,000 uh, households. And um, we gave some households these boxes, some households didn't get these boxes. And we looked to see what impact that had on both uh, pesticide-related self-poisoning and pesticide-related self-deaths, um, as well as other methods of self-harm. What we found is that, uh, and this study took seven years to do, um, and is one of the largest suicide prevention trials in the world, um, we found no evidence that the introduction of these boxes uh, reduced any of the outcomes. So this, uh, you can uh, imagine this is quite, a, this is a bit of a blow <laughs> to the team. But at the same time, it was, this trial was um, put, was sort of thought up and designed and funded by um, the Wellcome Trust. And the reason why I say the funding came from the Wellcome Trust is because that's quite important. Previous studies on looking at the impact of safe storage, as it's called, um, for pesticide um, poisoning were funded by the pesticide companies. And unsurprisingly, the evidence that comes out of that is spun in a way that it show, potentially shows benefit. Um, so there is commercial influence here, commercial lobbying. And if you have kept your um, ear open to the media uh, quite recently, because of a totally unrelated um, court case regarding uh, the actions taken by a certain pesticide company in um, uh, Parkinson's disease. So basically the link, I'm being careful about the names here, but um, <laughs> there was a, a big sort of, um, there's a big court case going on and they released a huge number of documents which um, resulted in uh, a, a blog that showed that the pesticide pesticide companies act knew about this problem about a certain pesticide resulting in a huge number of suicide deaths, and they um, took a decision that um, economically was. They were saying that it was it wasn't economically viable to introduce this thing into their product to reduce suicide deaths. So they made an economic choice, um, and not a sort of I guess, a human choice. So a bit of a segue, but obviously over the course of the pandemic, there's been a lot of research looking at the impact of the pandemic on global mental health. But when it comes to suicide prevalence, um, the UK hasn't actually officially released any reports on whether there has or hasn't been an increase. Last year, the ONS did provide some provision reports suggesting there hasn't been an increase. Um, but what do we know about the effect of the pandemic on suicide rates in low and middle income countries? I'm part of a group who are doing something called a living systematic review, which if you ever have the opportunity to get involved with, think carefully. Um, <laughs> it is a wonderful thing. It's basically a, a systematic review bringing together the evidence that is coming out in real time um, and um, helping us um, basically keep up to date with what 
what there is. So as part of that living systematic review, I've actually done a, uh, a nested review looking at low and middle income countries specifically to see what impact the pandemic has had on suicide um, in these countries. The evidence is really quite shockingly poor. There isn't a lot. Um, there's massive gaps in our understanding of what's happening. Um, but what evidence there is of, of the sort of higher quality studies um, suggests that during the early stages of the pandemic, so even though that this review, uh, we ex got hold of all the data up until August 2021, the data uh, only goes up till December 2020. So it's still the early stages of the pandemic um, that we can say anything about. And Based on that evidence, um, what it is suggesting is that there has been a drop in suicide rates um, at the start of the pandemic. There have also been uh, studies, uh, one of which uh, I've been involved with, has shown that also there's been a drop in hospital presentations for self-harm. But we don't know what impact this is going to have longer term. These are very early months of the pandemic. Um, so one of the things that... Uh, we, you know, we're very keen for our researchers to do is to keep at this, you know, keep maintain the effort in terms of trying to look at what impact the pandemic is having, because the challenges for low middle income countries is that you know, many of these lockdown measures that have been enforced have been enforced in the absence of adequate resourcing for basic needs. So um, it's it's a very different picture, say, to the UK, where, you know, you had furlough schemes or income support schemes and um, everything else in in other countries that that hasn't happened. So the impact will be greatest felt in those who are most disadvantaged anyway in those countries, in countries where there is already um, economic adversity. So my uh, unfortunate answer is we don't know a lot yet, but what there is is suggesting a reduction. Despite significant rises in the amount of suicide research, um, only 3% of all evidence originates from India and China, where 43% of all suicide deaths occur. What are the implications for this? And should we be viewing the problem of suicide differently? This is one of the major issues in suicide prevention research is that our evidence base is high-income countries. Now, um, Low and middle income countries, as I say, where 80% of the world's population live, most of the suicide deaths occur, we know little about. Um, and one, one of the uh, problems with using research that originates from high income countries in a low middle income country setting is that the contexts are obviously vastly different for a number of reasons. Economics being just one of them, cultures are different environments are different, people are different, histories are different, so um, religions are different. All these factors that you, you know, we've already touched upon on the podcast, these things are um, differences that are ignored if we just take high-income evidence. So the problem with taking high-income evidence, if we you know, go down that route, is that if we implement things that work in, say, high-income countries, in a low-middle-income country setting, then we are ignoring the fact that perhaps the behaviours are different in these settings. So um, I'll take one example of that. Mental illness is associated with suicidal behaviour. Treating mental illness is one of the most effective ways of you know, trying to reduce people uh, attempting suicide. 
So taking that and then marrying that up with what I knew from Sri Lanka, it just didn't fit. A lot of people in Sri Lanka don't have a mental illness. Sri Lankans don't even have the word for depression. You know, it doesn't, it's not in the language. So how can we say that people are likely to go on to die by suicide if they are depressed, if depression isn't even part of the sort of the general kind of day to day? So one of the things that I did with a, a large team of uh, suicide researchers was to look at what evidence there was for low middle income countries in terms of psychiatric morbidity um, and look at um, whether that was associated with suicide risk. Now, in high income countries, 80 to 90 percent of people die by suicide have a psychiatric disorder in high income countries. In low middle income countries, that's a different picture based on this review that we did, which is suggesting that it's something around 50 to 60 percent. So it's like half. So that's saying that Yes, psychiatric morbidity is important, but there is a whole host of other people who die by suicide where psychiatric disorder isn't even part of the picture. So by focusing on psychiatric disorder, we are actually not helping everyone. How do you think we can redress the imbalance in terms of the global neglection of suicide prevention? What is the best way to go forward in terms of research methods? Even before research methods, I think one of the things we need to do is capacity strengthen, you know, there are no surveillance systems in low middle income countries. I say that it's a bit of an exaggeration. There are some, but mostly there are, you know, there's a massive gap in um, surveillance of, of the issue. Most of what we know about suicide rates um, from, say, for example, the Global Burden of Disease Study uh, for Africa, it's, it's mainly model data. I think there's only one or two countries within Africa that provide any kind of estimate of it in Africa. So anything that we have is based on our understanding of the modeled risk of the risk factors for suicide behavior. So if you going a few steps back to what I just said, if you're taking the risk factors that we know from high income countries, using that to model suicide rates in low middle income countries, it's not the right picture, is it? Because the risk factors are different. Investment in people, investment in researchers in the countries um, to be able to lead these sort of surveillance programs or whatever else um, is, is one of the key things. So funding definitely is something that needs to be directed towards individuals and organizations and academics in low middle income countries. And also for reviewers and for sort of, I guess, other people when they're kind of looking at research from low income countries, always keeping that in mind that, you know, what we know may not be the truth. I'm using quotation marks here. You can't see me on these things. Um, it, it, it might not be the truth. So if some, if, if a researcher presents something, you know, take it, take it on face value that that might be what's happening in that countries and not, and not trying impose our understanding of a problem um, on, on whatever evidence that's coming out. So can you tell us a little bit about recent policies and implementation of evidence to reduce suicide in low and middle income countries? In terms of recent policies for reducing suicide, I guess the, the one thing that I um, can say is that there's been a, a rise in the number of countries in low in low middle income countries which have implemented pesticide bans um, learning from I guess uh, some of the success stories uh, in other countries like Sri Lanka 
in terms of other kind of changes that are happening, there haven't really been policies that have been implemented at a national level for suicide prevention. But I know that from sort of colleagues in Brazil that they have conditional cash transfer program, households of uh, sort of around the poverty line are given quite a small amount of money for basic needs. Diane um, in Brazil has done an analysis where she's kind of looked at what impact that um, program has had. And it's a surprising uh, reduction in suicide in Brazil. Right? She looked at, you know, it's a large kind of cohort study and there's been a huge reduction in suicide in Brazil. And it sort of points to, you know, potentially um, the provision of basic needs uh, is is a really important thing for suicide prevention. Um, and I guess that has relevance for sort of COVID-19. As I said, you know, a lot of these um, lockdowns have been put in place without the provision of resources and um, systems for ensuring people get their basic needs. So there's, there's things to be learned there. But yeah, th- the only policy level thing that I know that has been implemented in low-income countries uh, on scale is this uh, pesticide bans. Thank you so much for speaking with us, Julika. It's been an absolute pleasure listening to you. Your work is so important and you've really shed light on some incredibly powerful findings and I'm so looking forward to hearing your talk at the conference. Are there any final comments you want to tell our listeners or perhaps some reasons to come and hear your talk on the 15th? So the basis of my talk is to highlight the disparity and also to highlight why we shouldn't be taking the approach we have been taking for such a long time in suicide prevention um and so it kind of will give you highlights of why why we shouldn't be doing that and um suggest ways forward so to hear delika speak more about her incredible research alongside a selection of equally incredible speakers please come to the institute of mental health international virtue conference on the 15th of september The conference will feature local experts and guest speakers from all around the world, highlighting a range of mental health research, including lived experience research, precision psychiatry, basic neuroscience, and more.